The message today is entitled Present Truth. Present Truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you reveal to our hearts what is necessary for our day and our culture that we could step forward into your grace and be saved. Lord, thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen. In every age, there has been a truth that has been brought forward by God's people that was called present truth, meaning the the remedy of the sin of that day required a specific message from the word of God. Example, the world was in utter darkness because of the prison of Catholicism. And God brought forward Martin Luther, who nailed to that Wittenberg door those 95 theses, saying, indulgences are wrong. You cannot buy your salvation. You cannot chain the word of God. The word of God must be released to his people. And so that's what began to happen through the great Reformation. Now, there were serious theological errors in the Reformation. And those were not corrected until a man came by the name of Arminius. And he began to lay out the scriptures that were corrective for Calvinism. Then comes John Wesley, and he brought forward the message, not only can we walk free of sin, but we must walk free of sin, and to do that we must be totally, completely sanctified, made holy. So it was a message of holiness, of entirely being sanctified even the carnal nature being removed from us, so that the very moving of the Spirit in our hearts was healed. And so, as Mike has shared, the struggle he's involved in is still that process of being sanctified, of being transformed, but he's in the process. He's given his life to Jesus. He's been converted. But now there's a process he has to finish in the spirit of being entirely sanctified and made holy. So we're watching that. And Mike, thank you for being so forthright and vulnerable in sharing that. What is the present truth for today? What is it that we are facing today? And what is the message to carry us through this. If you look in Revelation, the 14th chapter, and I do not preach very often on Revelation because I've heard so many strange sermons saying so many strange things, many of them now, years later, proven wrong. But there are some very specific things that we can gain by looking at the book of Revelation. And one of those is what is the present truth for the last day, 
and we are in the last day. What is the truth for today? It's found in the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation. And the 14th chapter opens with Jesus claiming 144,000 of his Jewish people, 12,000 from each tribe. And he claims these as a first fruit, a first fruit of the cross. Then when you find in verse 6, the reason he has claimed these for himself is he's wrapping up everything on the earth. Now, in this last day, there are three angels that are found flying in mid-heaven. That's where they fly to make important announcements. We find in verse 6, the first angel is flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to the ones dwelling on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So there is now beginning a final great cry for all of the peoples on the earth, an invitation to receive the eternal gospel. Again, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is Jesus. It's a person. And it's the good news gospel because Jesus opened a way for every man and every woman to move out of the death darkness into the light. He gave us that opportunity to enter into heaven. And so he's announcing, this angel is announcing the everlasting gospel is about to close. You have heard the everlasting gospel, but now it's coming to an end. So here is your last chance. It's as though you're boarding a train or an airplane. And the announcer comes on and says, this is the last call for New York City, boarding on such and such a track or such and such a concourse. Please board now. That's what this angel's saying. You're having one last call, one last opportunity to receive Jesus and enter into his kingdom. And if you miss this call, you miss heaven. Have you ever missed your air flight? I have. It leaves an empty, sinking sensation in your stomach. You're carrying your suitcase. You're running down the concourse. You're trying to make it to the gate on time. You were held up with security, so you're running to make it to the gate. And you get to the gate, and you see the plane backing away. And you know you've missed your flight. And your heart sinks. You know that you're ending up now waiting for another flight. And then when you find out there won't be another flight that day, now you have to call your friends or your family and say, I missed the flight. Can you come pick me up? Your whole day is utterly wiped out. This is the last call for the gospel train. And if you miss this one, you end up in hell. 
That's the terrifying prospect. The gospel is that announcing that there is an avenue of escape if you will turn aside from your sin and you will receive Jesus and you will walk before him in fear and trembling, there is an avenue of escape. That's the cry of the first angel. Last call. Get on board now or you've missed it. Then there's a second angel. This is verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, The great Babylon fell, because she's made all the nations to drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So another angel comes after the last call, and this angel says, Babylon has fallen. Well, what is Babylon? Well, Babylon is that ancient city in Iraq founded by Nimrod, the wicked hunter man, after the flood. Babylon has always represented rebellion against God. The Tower of Babel was built for Babylon, where man said, okay, we're going to build a tower into the heavens. And God, looking down, saw that and said, you know what? If they're already doing this, they're going to do everything they can do in rebellion against me. I'm going to mix up their languages. But today, mixed up languages don't matter because we have computers. So we can communicate very easily with everyone. I've even seen people walking around Washington, D.C. from other countries who do not speak any English. And they'll speak into their little piece of equipment. And out of that equipment will come the translation in English. And it's fun to watch people go into a restaurant and sit down and speak to the waiter and the order will come out in English, even though they spoke in Chinese. This second angel has come and said, Babylon has fallen. And you know the history of Babylon. They took Israel captive. They burned the temple. Babylon has always been the babbling of the wicked, of the unrighteous. Babylon has always stood for everything that was modern and progressive, the best technology. They're the ones who had the hanging gardens, the one of the wonders of the world. Irrigation was an incredibly creative thing they did to create these beautiful hanging gardens out in the midst of the desert. Well, Babylon also represents the modern movement of a one-world government. Now, there are some who say New York City is Babylon. There are some who say the United States of America is Babylon. There are some who say Saudi Arabia and Islam is Babylon. 
I'm not sure what Babylon is, except it's the one world government. It's the elitist of the world who come together. I believe in cooperation with the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> and we will see emerge a mixture of religion and political power that will become a one world government. It's already in the process of happening now. If you open your eyes, it's on every hand. There's no longer in America a Republican and Democrat party. It's the same party. And God brought in a man who would give us a little bit of time. It's as though God put his foot in the door and said, no, it's not time to close this door on America yet. So we were, we were able to have a little bit of time with President Trump intervening so that the one world government was stymied for a time. But the avalanche is coming. There will be a one world government. So the second angel comes announcing Babylon has fallen because she's made all the nations to drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now there's another angel, a third angel comes. And this third angel comes to speak specifically to God's people. The plane has already left. The third angel's already made the announcement. Last call for heaven. The second angel announces this wicked system that you see emerging that's killing my people. It's going to collapse and fall. Now we have the third angel comes to speak to God's people. He says in verse 9, And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, even he himself will drink from the wine of the wrath of God, having been poured unmixed into the cup of his wrath and will be tormented with fire and brimstone before the holy angels and before the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. The one worshiping the beast and the image also, if anyone receives the mark of his name. Here is the endurance of the holy ones, the one always keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice out of heaven saying, You must write, Blessed are the dead, the ones dying in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their toils, but their works will follow them. So we find in the three angels the final message to earth. Holiness is the final message before the judgment of God comes. Holiness of life, meaning, I make the choice to turn aside from darkness. And every one of you in here knows when you sin. We know what we do. We know wickedness. It's deliberate. It's our choice. It's our way of life. And the final call is bored now or miss out. 
Now, when we look at this question of holiness and this final message, I want you to go back with me to the book of Romans. Romans, the sixth chapter. Paul, in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, shows us that death came upon all of us because of Adam, because of Adam's sin. Now let me begin in chapter 5, verse 18. Accordingly then, as through one man's sin, resulting in a death sentence against all conceivable men, so also through one man's righteous act, resulting in righteousness of life for all conceivable men, for justice through disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Let's be clear. By Adam's sin, we all sinned because Adam produces after his kind. He was a sinner man. And the only thing Adam can produce is other sinner men and women. So all of the children of Adam and Eve are sinners, except one. And his name was Jesus. Born of a woman, but not of a man. Born of a woman, but not of a man. Born of the Holy Spirit. So he says, For just as though, as just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also by the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. So through Adam, we were all made unrighteous. I will not die for Adam's sin, though. If I die, I die for my sin. Because all of us choose how we walk. Because Jesus gave us that opportunity to escape. If Jesus had not opened that door of salvation for us, we would all be doomed to die and face the judgment and go to hell. And by the way, hell is forever. Hell is everlasting. It's not something to be casual about. It's something to be eager to miss. Then the law entered with Moses with the result that sin may be multiplied. So men who, who didn't understand the fullness of their sin after the law came, we all understand what sin is. But where the sin multiplied, the grace superabounded to overflowing that even as sin reigned in the sphere of death, so also the grace may reign by the means of righteousness. There's only one way that life can be in your body. That's through righteousness, holiness. If you're not holy, you're headed for hell. If you're not righteous, and righteous is dikasune, it just means innocent. If you're not innocent, you're headed for hell. By the blood of Jesus Christ, we are made innocent. We are forgiven. But then we walk in that. Now, let's look at chapter 6. What then shall we say? Continue in sin so that grace may become more and more? No, certainly not. In the Greek, this is as strong a statement as can be made. No. 
don't continue walking in your sin. We who died to sin, how shall we live in it? So Paul is not speaking here to the, to the sinner. He's speaking to those of us who've made a decision to follow Jesus. But if you are a sinner, he'll let you listen. And he'll let you make a decision to walk in righteousness. Verse 3, or are you ignorant? Are you unaware? Do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now let's be clear about what this means. When a sinner man comes face to face with Jesus, a decision has to be made. Am I going to turn aside from my life and receive Jesus Christ and be changed? I cannot remain in my old way and be in Jesus. You can't be in sin and in Jesus. There has to be a total death. Now, where we struggle is we want to plan on keeping part of our life. We want to keep the, the clubs, or we want to keep the entertainment that's wicked. We want to keep lustful relationships. We want to keep fornication. We want to keep our ambition for money. We want to keep our sports. We, there are things we want to keep. But what does a dead man keep? A dead man doesn't keep anything. In fact, all of his belongings, according to his will, are passed out to others. So if I were to die today, I wouldn't keep my house or my car or my clothes. I wouldn't even keep my Bible. I'd be in the grave. And hopefully, friends like you all would gather at the grave and remember me and say some prayers for me, but I'd be gone. When you come to Jesus Christ, you die. Your old man is done. Now, the battle that Mike's been talking about is when the old man isn't dead yet, and it keeps getting up and kicking other people in the face. Rage comes. Anger boils. Death is the only answer. As one man said to me, when I said, how are you? He said, a deeper dying. A deeper dying. It means dying out. Totally, completely being changed, a new life, being given a new life. But I can't keep the old life and the new life. One has to go and the other come. If I keep the old life, I die as Adam's children have died. And then I expect the raging fire 
to consume me. Notice, verse 4, really, Paul is saying, look, I'm not kidding you here. This is real. We were buried together with him by means of the baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from among the dead men by the glory of the Father, so also we may walk around in newness of life. And that word newness in the Greek, it means something that never existed before. It's a new person, a new creature. Can you imagine a man walking around with a corpse tied to his body? There were times in Rome when a man was sentenced to death and when he was sentenced to death, they brought out a corpse of another man who had been executed, and they tied that dead corpse on that man's body. And until he died, until they executed him, he carried that stinking dead body around with him. And finally, he would be executed. Doesn't that make your skin crawl? It does mine. But a man who wants to serve Jesus does not want the dead corpse of his past wickedness tied to him. He wants to be free of that, of the drug addiction, of the alcohol, of the fornication, of the cursing, of the stealing, of the lying, of every unclean and wicked thing. He wants it gone. He wants to be washed by the blood. He wants to be made whole. He doesn't want that dead corpse hanging on his body. And you know what? If you came in here today with a dead corpse strapped on your body, we would probably all leave because the stench would be so bad we would not be able to stomach it. Well, the same is true of a person who calls himself a Christian and walks like the world. They're carrying a dead body around, and wherever they go, there's a stench. That's why the dead body has to go, Mike. Dead body has to go. We can't walk around with that stench because the stench will be greater than the glory of the presence of Jesus that we desire to have shining forth from our hearts and our lives. So you have a friend who, who says, hey, I'm a Christian man. Why don't you go with me to the club tonight? You, know, you don't have to drink. Let's just go and dance a little bit. There's nothing wrong with that. Come on. You know you'll have a good time. And you go. And you juice that dead corpse tied to you. You don't want to go there. There's no testimony of Jesus there. There is a total separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. 
there has to be a total separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. Or there is a stench accompanying the person who says, I'm a Christian, but lives like the devil, talks like the devil, lives like the devil. They stink. That stench should not be about you or your life. It should be the pure atmosphere of heaven about you. The restfulness of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. So Hebrews, the sixth chapter, verse six, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. The old man wasn't tied to my back. The old man was crucified. I'm done. It's finished. So that the body of sin may be destroyed. That is, not put down, not suppressed, destroyed. That's the Greek word used here. Totally destroyed. That we not hereafter serve sin. For the one having died has been freed from sin. So with death, the crucifixion of the old man comes freedom in Jesus. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised out from the dead men, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For in that he died, he died with reference to sin once and for all. And he lives. He lives with, with respect to God. So also you must think yourselves to be dead to sin, but living for God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there is a mindset that I must adopt that says, I'm done with sin. I'm dead to it. I'm not going to go there anymore. A man walks away from alcohol. He says, I'm sober. Praise God he's sober. He is sober so that he can now have a clear mind to make decisions about eternity so that he will not go to hell, but go to heaven. Therefore, verse 12, the sin must not reign in your mortal body to obey it in the lust of it. You must not yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to the sin, but once and for all yield yourselves to God as living out from among spiritually dead men and yield your members as instruments of righteousness for God. You must not yield your members to those wicked things that keep coming at you any more than you're going to yield yourself to that alcohol or to that pot. You're not going to yield yourself to that whatever it is. You're going to not yield yourself. You're saying, no, I'm not going to go there because I don't want the stench of death about my life. I want to live for Jesus. I want to testify that Jesus is Lord. He is the one I love. 
once and for all. Yield yourselves to God as living out from among spiritually dead men and yield your members as instruments of righteousness for God. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. You have been set free by the blood of Jesus. The present truth that we're proclaiming on the radio, the present truth that I proclaim here, is that the last angel is making his call. All aboard. And we either make that decision now to leave our sin and to yield ourselves totally and completely, not to our feelings, not to our emotions, not to our doubts, not to our fears, not to the voice of the devil speaking to us. We decide now that we will yield ourselves fully to Jesus Christ. and not to darkness. We make that decision that we will do what God calls us to do, that we're not going to walk any longer in bitterness or anger. We're not going to walk in rebellion. We're going to walk clean. This is a very deliberate action on your part to be made holy. To be made holy is not totally the work of God. It is also our work as we yield ourselves. It says, yield yourself, give yourself. That's an act of the will. That's a decision that we make in a very concrete given situation. We choose not to respond to the triggers of the world. We instead give ourselves, we yield ourselves voluntarily to the power of God. Now, I can do that only with the power of the Holy Spirit. But I am the one who must make that decision. Grace is not a license to sin. It is what enables me to live a righteous life by faith in the blood of Jesus. Now, I'm speaking this way to all of you. Not because I think you're some great sinner, even though you may be. I speak this way because we as a fellowship have to become absolutely clear in our minds and our hearts what we stand for. And what we stand for is the last call of the gospel to America. To leave your sin and enter into Jesus. That's the call. And any area of compromise 
means you have a dead body still tied to your back. And it will be depressing. It will give you stench everywhere you go. And people won't know if they're looking at the dead man pretending he's alive or if they're looking at the Jesus man who is made alive. The present truth for this hour is holiness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know the call is to be made holy. And I'm asking for a great soberness to come upon each of our hearts, either because there are still areas of sin that we have not died out to, or because we see the condition of America, our family and our friends, and we see the great task before us of being fishers of men to win others to you, Jesus. For I know the hour of compromise is past. I know that the decision is a final decision, heaven or hell. So, Lord, I would ask that if there is sin in the heart of any man here or any woman, that a great groaning would begin to emerge from them under the burden of their sin and that they would allow it to utterly be removed from them. Or on the other side, that a great burden for the souls of others would be placed upon us, that we would no longer in any manner be casual but would give our money, our time, our energy, everything to bring this word to Washington and to this nation. In the name of Jesus, amen.